This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Gather to 1 Samuel chapter 4 with the expectation that this rather strange Old Testament book, that these are not just dry and dusty letters, but that the voice of God speaks today, right now, as we read and as we listen, that God is speaking directly to our souls. And so as you turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 4, I would like to read a sentence to you that I found in a slim commentary by Dale Ralph Davis, who is a Presbyterian pastor in Tennessee, and he wrote this very striking sentence that I just want to let hang in the air as we read this chapter together. He writes this, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Let me say that again. Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And he is willing to allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the kind of God he really is. And I hope we are here today for a genuine, true, living relationship with God, not just carrying on with the outward forms of religion. And our desire today is to have a true encounter with this God who is even willing to disappoint us if it means we come into a true relationship with him. I'll let that hang in the air as we read this chapter, and we will return to that thought in a bit. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to start in the second half of the first verse. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage 
And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you've borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Wow. The people of Israel suffered many defeats and disasters over their history, but none so disastrous as what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And for the first time in this book, we're introduced to these people called the Philistines. Uh, You may recall from the book of Judges, Samson probably has just about died at this time. Eli and Samson somewhat overlap. And he had spent his career 40 years fighting these very Philistines. The Philistines seem to have been a people group who appeared suddenly in the Middle East from the Aegean Sea, probably from Crete. The Egyptians encountered them, narrowly defeated them, and referred to them as the Sea Peoples. And the Sea Peoples arrived at a time when empires were weak and crumbling, and with their superior military technology and strategy, they rapidly established themselves in the southwest coast of Palestine, about where the Gaza Strip is today. And they had a confederacy of five cities, five strong cities. And now it seems they are heading north and east. Aphek is only 20 miles west of Shiloh. And so it seems like these Philistines are headed towards the spiritual and political heart of Israel. And they must be stopped So Israel musters an army, and they send these men to stand to encamp across from the Philistines. 
and then they join battle. And day one does not go well for Israel. And they have to pull back to their camp with 4,000 corpses, 4,000 warriors littering the battlefield. And then the elders, the leaders of Israel, ask themselves this question. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, that is a good and very sensible question. They're thinking a theological question immediately because they know this is not just a human thing that's happening on the plane of politics and the military. Somehow God is involved with this thing. And we have faced many defeats in the past, and somehow God has always delivered us. And the answer to that question for them is obvious. We've been defeated today because we didn't bring the Ark of God with us from Shiloh. The Ark of God was a wooden box about this long, about this wide, and this tall. It wasn't that big. It was a wooden box that the Lord God had commanded Moses to build. It was made of wood. It was covered with gold. There were two poles and rings on the feet. And this Ark, this box, contained three things. A pot of manna the bread that had fallen from heaven to nourish the Israelites, the staff of Aaron, this ordinary staff that had budded and put forth almonds. And then there were, most importantly, the stone tablets of the law that Moses had brought down from Mount Sinai. And those tablets signified the covenant that God had made with Israel, a special relationship that God had formed where God had promised to be Israel's God. They had promised to serve him faithfully as their people. And this covenant had been placed for safekeeping in this box. It's as though the contract has been put into the registry. So every time the Israelites want to know whether or not God is their God, they can remember it's right there in the ark, in the most holy place in their tabernacle. And the ark had a lid, and over the lid were two cherubim, which were not fat, cuddly little angels, but terrifying, half-human, half-mythical beast, angelic, supernatural figures, these huge creatures with multiple wings overshadowing the ark. And the Israelites believed that this ark was the throne of God, that somehow God dwelt over these cherubim, and that the Holy of Holies was the home of God, and the ark was his footstool. And in the Exodus story, going into the book of Joshua, the ark, this sacred chest, goes before the army of God as they go through the wilderness. When the people cross the Jordan and start conquering these cities, it's the ark that is always going with them. If you think of the most famous story in the book of Joshua, the siege of Jericho, the people march around the city seven times, and the priests are carrying the ark in front of them. And it was a demonstration that they were conquering these peoples, not by their own might or their strategy, but by the power of Yahweh alone. He's clearing the way for them. So these elders are thinking to themselves, how foolish of us to leave this ark sitting uselessly in the Holy of Holies 20 miles away. We need to get this thing here pronto so that we can deal with these Philistines in a completely thorough manner. And they send messengers back to Shiloh and Hophni and Phinehas, the two priests, go into the Holy of Holies, pick up the ark by its poles and trot down to the battlefield so that this ark can be present for the next conflict. 
And notice what these elders say. They want this ark there so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So that it may come among us. And the Hebrew is ambiguous. Your translation may say that that he may come among us. The point is the same because wherever the ark is, God is there. If we have the ark, we have God on our side. We have this super weapon and we're about to detonate this thing and create a massive mushroom cloud and wipe out the Philistine army. And they begin to shout. And it's an echo of the battle of Jericho when the people of God give a mighty shout and the walls of this impregnable city fall down flat. And the people shout with joy because victory is certain. And their shout is so loud, the ground shakes and the Philistines a mile or two away hear the ground rumbling and start to wonder what on earth is going on in the camp of the Israelites. And somehow word gets back to them that the ark is present. And then their hearts fail them. They are filled with fear because they've heard what is clearly a somewhat garbled story of what happened during the Exodus. They're not quite sure how many gods were involved. They remember the plagues as happening in the wilderness rather than in Egypt, but they get the gist. Some mighty, massive, divine power somehow conquered the greatest empire of the day and went before Israel, putting fear into the hearts of everyone who ever opposed them. And the Philistines are afraid, and they resolve... If we're going to die, we're going to go down fighting. We're going to die with honor. And filled with desperation, they face Israel on the face of battle. And to the shock equally of Israel and of the Philistines, Israel is defeated. Not just 4,000 corpses on the battlefield, but a massive slaughter of the Israelite army. The people flee. Everyone runs for their lives. The whole army melts away. Hophni and Phinehas seem to have died in a desperate last stand defense of this most holy of holy objects. And then we read to our shock that the ark of God has been captured. Something unimaginable to us if we follow the story of Israel from the Exodus through the book of Joshua and Judges Till now, the ark of God has been captured. Yahweh went into battle with the Philistines and he lost. God lost and now God himself is a captive of this pagan army. Worse news can hardly be imagined. And now the army has melted away and the road to Shiloh lies completely open. And just in front of the advancing Philistine army is a messenger, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, and he's ripped his clothes and he's put dirt on his head as a symbol of his grief and his mourning for this massive national calamity. And he runs 20 miles uphill and appears in Shiloh out of breath with this terrible, terrible news. And the news rapidly spreads and the whole city is in an uproar. Now, if you read further about Shiloh in Psalm 78 and Jeremiah 7, it becomes clear that Shiloh is actually destroyed at this time. The Philistines must have come and wiped out the city. 
And in fact, archaeological evidence shows that Shiloh was burned to the ground in the mid-11th century B.C. So the city is in a panic. People are gathering their families, their children, whatever possessions they can, and just booking it out of the town before the enemy hordes arrive to kill and destroy everything. And here is Eli, the old 98-year-old high priest, sitting at the side of the road, watching. He's watching, but by now he's completely blind. His eyes are fixed sightlessly ahead of him. The spiritual leader is watching, but he can't see anything. But he can hear this uproar, the cries and shouts in the city, people rushing around. And so he, he demands that someone, please, anyone, tell him what's going on. Because his heart has already been filled with a terrible premonition. His heart was trembling for the ark of God. And I'm sure that when the request came to Shiloh for the ark and Hophni and Phinehas opened the curtain to go into the Holy of Holies, it was against the high priest's better judgment. And he did not want this thing to happen for this ark to be risked. But his sons had no respect for him. He's pushed to the side. And now the Holy of Holies stands empty and the ark is on the battlefield and his heart is trembling for what's about to happen. And the messenger, in breathless words, and you can feel his, his breathlessness in the way he's stuttering out his message, gives him the news from bad to worse. The army has fled. It's been a massive defeat. His two sons are dead. The prophecy's been fulfilled. The judgment against him has been fulfilled. And worst of all, the ark of God has been captured. And the moment Eli hears about the ark of God, he falls over backwards, possibly having a massive heart attack from the shock. He falls over backwards from his chair and his neck breaks and the old heavy man is dead. Dethroned, literally and symbolically. This man who's judged Israel for 40 years is now himself judged and the dynasty comes to an end. And that's not all that happens to his family because the camera moves to his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, who is heavily pregnant. And this terrible news spreading through the city seems to have put her into early labor. And kneeling forward on the birthing stone, she gives birth in agony to a baby son. And there's no joy in her heart with the news of this disaster. And she names him Ichabod, which means no glory or where is the glory with this sentence over him, the glory has departed from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. And the glory of Israel, what set Israel apart from all the nations, of course, is the Lord God himself. That's why Israel was special. They had no other qualities to put them above any other nation. They were small. They were weak. They were defenseless. They were technologically and culturally behind everyone else. Here's this tiny nation surrounded by hostile enemies, and their only safety lay in the fact that the Lord God of hosts, the God of heaven's armies, lived among them to shine his glory on them and to protect them from everything that would destroy them. And now the ark has been captured, and God, it seems, has been taken prisoner. 
And now this little nation is naked and defenseless. And the end, the death of Israel cannot be far off at all. You see, the ark is not just a symbol, a historical symbol. This is not like the Declaration of Independence in National Treasure, that documentary you may have seen. It's not at all like that. If the, do- if the Declaration of Independence had not been returned by Nicolas Cage, it would have been deeply embarrassing for the American government, but would probably not have led to the collapse of the nation with Canadian hordes pouring south over the border. It's not merely a symbol like that. It's more like the fall of Constantinople in 1453. They had these massive walls to their city, these incredible fortifications that they had trusted in for centuries. And then imagine the horror when you heard that the Ottoman armies at last had broken through the walls. And your heart turns to ice within you and you know it's all over now, our civilization has died. And that's what it would have felt like for Israel. And this poor woman in her, in her death agonies grieves. She's grieved to the heart at this national disaster, this total calamity, the future destroyed and in ruins already. The glory has departed. And not just departed, because that word is usually translated elsewhere as led into captivity or exiled. God has been captured and God has gone into exile and now we are all alone. This is a terrible chapter and perhaps one of the very darkest moments in the history of Israel. And what does God have to teach us from this national Disaster. The error that Israel made, their fatal error, was to think that the power of God was something that they could control. You've heard the expression putting God in a box. That is quite literally what they are doing, thinking that if they cart this ark around, They are carrying God around with them. And they can deploy him wherever they choose to achieve the project that they have decided to embark on. And if we have this ark here, if we have control of this sacred paraphernalia, then we have control of God. After all, God has made a covenant with us. It's right there in the box. He wrote it with his own finger on that stone And therefore, God is obligated to save us. And we can put ourselves in the most risky of situations, confident that we have forced God's hand, we have him in our back pocket, and God has to do what we want him to do. Now, at the very beginning of the story, the elders had asked a very good question after that initial skirmish. Why has the Lord defeated us? And it's a shame they didn't let that question hang awkwardly in the air for a moment. It's a shame that was only a rhetorical question that they answered far too quickly. It's a shame that question did not prompt deep self-reflection. 
Because if you've read the book of Judges, which happened right before the book of Samuel, the same dumb thing happens over and over again, doesn't it? The people forget God. They start worshiping idols. And God, they cry out to God in repentance. He rescues them from the enemies that are conquering them. And the whole thing happens over and over and over again. And you would have thought that the elders of all people would have learned the lesson and cried out to God in repentance. You know what else is remarkable? That Samuel is nowhere to be seen. We've spent the first three chapters of the book charting the rise of this remarkable child set aside by God. And then for the next three chapters, Samuel vanishes. Finally, after years of no words from God, no dreams and no visions, the word of God has come to all Israel through this prophet. Why did the elders not send to Samuel and ask him this question? Samuel, you are a prophet. Could you please ask God for us? Why have we been defeated in this battle? We want to inquire of God what we should do next. But the answer is so obvious to them. There is no need, they think, to inquire of God. Because rather than doing the hard work of repentance, and honestly, who enjoys digging into your own sin? far easier to send away for the magic box, isn't it? To lay our hands on the power that can deliver us from the problem that we have in front of us right here. It is commendable, I suppose, they were asking God questions from the start. And it is commendable that they are seeking the power of God. They're not depending on their own strength. They're not turning to horses and chariots and iron weapons. They're not even turning to the pagan idols that we know they were bowing down to at this time. They are genuinely seeking the power of God. Just as you and I may be genuinely seeking the power of God. But they were seeking God's power like pagans. They were treating God like an idol. See, idolatry is not just about making a physical image of something and worshiping, worshiping it. The whole point of idolatry is having a God you can control and you give the God, him or her, the food and the clothes and the praise that they need to survive. And in return for this The gods will do what you want them to do. And the Israelites are treating Yahweh just like one of the idols of the nations. They think he's more powerful, but he's essentially the same in kind. And they're thinking in terms of a transaction. What do we need need to do to lay hold of the divine power to solve our problem, to succeed in our project? And what God is shouting at us through this chapter is this. I will not be controlled by you. I will not allow myself to be manipulated by you. And I have no interest in serving your project. I am the king. And I am utterly and completely free. 
You do not have a leash around my neck. You do not have me in your back pocket. You are not carrying me around in a box. You can't force me to unleash my power to achieve your own ends. And when we start seeing this deceptive idolatry of Israel in this chapter, we need to ask the uncomfortable question of our own seeking of the power of God. And you may be fasting and praying. There may be some desperate issue in your life right now, and you're not You're well past the point where you can rely on your own strength or ingenuity to solve it. You're not turning to outside help or other idols. You are genuinely seeking the power of God to fix your problem. And you may be treating God just the way these Israelites did in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Attempting to harness the power of God. Attempting to harness the power of God. And this instinct is at the bottom of every human religion and every human spiritual instinct. What's the clue? What do I need to do to figure out how to make this God help me succeed or deliver me from my problem or my situation? How can I deploy God on my battlefield? How can I get God to give me my miracle? And if you look at the Christian books that are being sold and are being bought by the hundreds of thousands, you realize this is the question so many Christians are asking. How can I get God to give me my miracle? And you may be here seeking the power of God as a Christian or as someone on a journey to God wondering, how can I get God to give me my miracle? God does not care about your miracle. He's about something much more massive in your life than your miracle. Because God does not want to fulfill your idolatry. He wants to smash your idolatry and free you from the slavery to your idols to worship him in spirit and in truth. And therefore, God is willing to allow us to be disappointed by him the idolatrous claims and expectations we've put on him. He's willing to disappoint us, to bring us into a true relationship with himself. We are all guilty of carrying the ark of God, as it were, onto our battlefields. And maybe the battlefield of the struggles of life, because life is difficult And bad things happen, and we want God to come and help us and rescue us out of the awkward situations that befall us, the terrible and painful situations that befall us. 
It's happened to me twice now that my business has essentially failed. I sell books on Amazon, and it's happened to me twice that my Amazon account has been shut down out of the blue, and years of work and the vast majority of our family's income has been switched off in a moment. That is not an enjoyable email to receive as the bottom drops out of your world, financially speaking. And when it last happened, I think it was in April, I felt the Holy Spirit challenging me to pray through the situation with open hands before God. Because when that kind of stuff happens and you feel that knot in your stomach, you start desperately praying and making sure that you're holy in every area of your life so that God has nothing against you. You try to find ways to get God to be favorable to you, to give back to you what you've lost. And I felt the Holy Spirit challenging me, open up your hands to God, and it's okay to pray for this to be restored, but are you willing to worship God if he does not restore this to you? Are you willing to trust God no matter what? And so often we are trusting God for something, I'm trusting God for my healing or for a husband or for a job when we should just trust God, period. Why do we feel the need to tell God what he needs to do for us? Why does it feel like a scary thing to simply open ourselves up to God and say, God, whatever you choose to do in my life, do. It's because we're afraid of God, aren't we? We want to bind him and tie him up in some way. We also try to carry the ark of God even more insidiously into the battlefield of our sanctification. I have sins that I struggle with, and that brings me guilt and shame. And I don't want to feel like I'm immature and falling short. And I want to deploy the power of God to give me victory, to give me my victory so I feel better about myself, so that some secret dark thing in my life won't be exposed. But it's my victory I'm seeking. It's not about pleasing God or seeking to be obedient to him. It's my own victory that I'm seeking. Or we may be trying to carry the ark of God into our ministry. genuinely seeking and longing for the power of God to validate our ministry. And we were part of a church for several years that was really seeking the power of God and all the available manifestations of the spirit. We wanted them all and we did genuinely experience some of them, but we realized that after a few years that behind this seeking of the power of God was deep insecurity on the part of the leader. And he wanted to see the power of God to feel validated himself against those who had doubted him in the past. And then we started asking ourselves, maybe it's not just him. Maybe we're all seeking some kind of validation that the power of God can give us to prove ourselves against those who have doubted us and to demonstrate that we have God in our back pocket and we're fruitful and successful. B. 
being the pastor and the leader of this church is a difficult and dangerous thing. And when there are many people in this room, I feel very good about myself. And when the room is empty and we're all kind of tired and distant, I don't feel so good about myself. And there's a great deal of myself and my own ego and my own need for validation and to be stroked involved in that. And perhaps you can identify in your own ministry where your joy comes, the joy you're seeking is from massive power and success in your ministry. All different ways that we try to carry the ark of God into our own battlefields and deploy him for our own projects. It's not about loving God. It's about using God for our own projects. The first time I traveled on my own was in about 2004, and I was in Nepal. I was walking the streets of Kathmandu, and some young man came up to me, and he was very friendly, and he offered to show me around the city. What a generous, kind person. And he spent the whole day with me, took me to this festival, and we saw all kinds of cool stuff. And then when the day ended, we had a rather awkward conversation where I realized, of course, he was expecting money from me. And I gave him money. I don't remember how much because I think I've blocked out just how much this naive Canadian tourist was forced to, in this awkward situation, to give to this person. And you realize when you're a tourist that the people who come up to you and say, my friend, they're not your friend. They're not your friend. They don't care about you. They're trying to get something out of you. Perhaps you've had the experience of being invited to someone's house for dinner and you think they want to get to know you and they care about you and then they pull out their nutritional supplements that they're selling and your heart sinks and you realize, yeah, I'm just being used here. It's a gross feeling, isn't it? And are we praying to God in the same way? God, my friend, please give me this thing that I want from you. Buy my nutritional supplements. We've got an angle on God. And instead of loving him and worshiping him and genuinely seeking his face, there's something we're trying to get out of him. You know, this is all about... God serving my kingdom rather than me serving God's kingdom. And the word God is in there and the word kingdom is in there and all the same vocabulary is used. The Holy Spirit, the power of God, prayer, fasting, holiness, but it's all pointed toward the wrong end. Let's probe into this a little further and ask you some awkward questions, perhaps. Are we genuinely taking the time to seek God's will for what we want to do? Or is that just a perfunctory thing? We ask the question and hastily move on to what, of course, we want to do. Are we really open to the Holy Spirit directing us clean contrary to what we really want to do? Or are we just looking for the rubber stamp, the blessing, the amen of God on the desires of our own hearts? Does the Holy Spirit, do we ever allow the Holy Spirit to contradict our own desires? We've all encountered people who are obviously doing selfish things, but they tell you, 
in perfect sincerity that the Holy Spirit has told them to do that thing. And perhaps we are guilty of that very thing ourselves. And here is one test of whether it's our own project or God's project, our own kingdom or God's. What happens when God does not answer our prayer and the power we were expecting and claiming does not fall upon our situation? Do we become angry at God for not keeping up his end of the deal? Does our faith collapse because God has failed to do what we promised he would do? It's a sign that we're not worshiping God himself, but something that we want from God. Are we truly willing to trade success and even security for a deeper intimacy with God? What is more important to you, intimacy with God or success and security? That is an awkward question. And may you let it hang in the air as the Holy Spirit works on your heart. God wants us to be worshipers of him, not users of him. Worshipers, not users. The good news of the gospel is that there is no need to manipulate God. There's no need to manipulate God because he doesn't need anything from you. It's very hard to do a transaction with someone who does not genuinely need anything from you. God is sovereign and free, and God uses his freedom not to destroy our lives as we fear if we open ourselves up to him. God uses his freedom to give just to give, not as part of a transaction, not because he's been manipulated or dragged somewhere in a magic box, but because God loves to give. And he gives himself. The son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And that is worlds away from human religion and transactional spirituality. The son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. Not as some sneaky way to get something from me, not because there was anything he could gain. He just freely poured himself out for me. And he hangs on a cross for sinners like us who have all fallen short And there's no price tag on it whatsoever. And he's hanging there not to use us for his own ends, but out of sheer gracious love to those he wants to adopt into his family. The reason you would even want to serve God's kingdom rather than having him serve yours is because of the king at the heart of God's kingdom. This is a king who is full of love and he pours himself out freely for those in his kingdom. And he's not squeezing us, manipulating us, trying to get something out of us. He just wants to give 
and give and give to his people. And as the Holy Spirit reveals more and more of Jesus to us, we realize, do you know what? His kingdom, serving in his kingdom, involves far more joy and love and life than having God serve me in my small, cramped, petty little kingdom. God loves you enough to disappoint you. He loves you enough to smash your idols and to bring you into the place of true worship. Because what God wants for you is for you to stand before him with your face shining as you gaze on the beauty of God, as you look into the eyes of pure love. And when we stand before the face of Jesus and behold our king, our own success and our own security in this life will melt away into nothing as we lose ourselves in worship before him. And it's only the Holy Spirit who can change our hearts to become worshipers of God rather than users. So let's bow our heads and pray and ask him to make us worshipers of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we repent of the ways that we have sought your power to achieve our own ends. Forgive us, Lord, for being worshipers of ourselves and for trying to build our own little kingdom, for using you rather than bowing before you and worshiping you. These things go so deep, O Lord, that it's only your Holy Spirit that can change us. And we ask that he would help us to to truly repent, and to truly love you. It's not something we can make ourselves do, O oh God. It's only as he reveals Jesus more deeply and more profoundly to our hearts that we become like Jesus, loving without manipulation. We want to be true worshipers, O oh Lord, because more than anything else, despite our impurity, we want to see your face. Show yourself to us, O God, and transform us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.